Take me out to the ball game Take me out with the crowd Buy me some peanuts and crack Welcome to Let's Get Two, the baseball podcast from the fans' perspective. Now here's your host, James Christopher. We'll beat the drum and hold the phone. The sun came out today. We're born again. There's new grass on the field. The great American poet, John Fogarty. Welcome to Let's Get Two, everybody. This is the season premiere of season two, and I am your host, James Christopher, and we're excited because today is the day. It's the day we all look forward to after the final out of whatever team you happen to root for, the day that pitchers and catchers report. There's no other sport that does this. There's no other sport that looks forward to the beginning of the season, the way we look forward to pitchers and catchers reporting. And it really does happen. The minute your team makes the final out of the season, whether it's after game 162, whether it's after the wild card game, whether it's after the divisional round, the series, you resign yourself to your fate and say, well, pitchers and catchers are reporting can't be that bad. It is in many ways the biggest day of promise in the sports world, especially when you factor in the marathon that is the regular baseball season, the 162 major league season, or the slightly shorter but still really long minor league and independent league seasons. And it brings so much promise because it's February. It snowed last week in Austin, Texas, of all places. But it's a day of promise because it means that summer's coming. And summer's coming, bringing the gifts of ballparks, home runs, fireworks, and memories. And as we sit here on February 11th, everyone's alive. It's the time of optimism. Remember last year, the World Series champs were way under 500 to start the season. So really, in February, on February 11th, it's anybody's ball game. It's the time of year where your team is alive, and this can be a season that you're going to remember for the rest of your life. Whether you're loaded, like the Yankees, Dodgers, and Astros, or whether you've been building like the Reds or White Sox and think this is your shot. Right now, all 30 teams have an equal shot at it, and it's what makes this game so special. And we're just really excited to be a part of it. So for those of you listening for the first time and don't know anything about us, maybe you found us through some of our unboxing videos we did in the offseason, a little bit about our show. So our show is all about the cultural impact of the sport of baseball. Think of it as a human interest show about the sport at large. Our focus is mainly on minor league baseball, independent baseball, and collegiate summer league baseball. And we did that because we believe that is where the heart of the game lives. That's where the game is born. It's where it's nurtured and You know, the majority of baseball games are played at levels, not the major league level. And I think it's it's important to help people realize just how deep the love for the game goes in those communities. When you're talking about minor league baseball and independent baseball, like in the Atlantic League, or you're talking about collegiate summer league, it's, it's a sport about hustle and sweat and less about market. It's where the size of your heart matters more than the size of your payroll. 
And I think in a country that's turning more and more jaded, in a world that's turning more and more jaded, when you can look for things that truly are meritocracies, you celebrate that. In other walks of life and the other interests that I have, I think it's always important to know the frame of reference for who you're listening to. I'm a history major and a film major. I've taught both history. I teach both film. And in subjective areas like this, and I would think like what our show is, it's important to know the point of view of the person that is doing the talking. So I grew up in Houston, Texas, did not know anything about minor league baseball. I'm 43. Nope, 44. Because now I'm reaching the type of age where I have to like do the math in my head. And so minor league baseball just wasn't a thing. I I was a diehard Astros fan. I lived and breathed with that team. And if you know anything about the history of that team prior to 2017, it is a team whose legacy is based purely on pain. And if you listen to that and you hear the voice of Mr. T from Rocky Three, you should, because that was the level of pain. My first real memories of watching baseball as like a beyond, isn't it neat to go to this really big building and watch men play a game, was the 1986 Astros team. And and it was a team where I was convinced that there was never be a team better than that one. And there was never a team as good as them before that team. You know, it was Nolan Ryan and Mike Scott and Billy Doran and Billy Hatcher and Kevin Bass and Glenn Davis, like... These were my my childhood in these glorious rainbow jerseys. And they were good. Mike Scott had that filthy split finger fastball that everybody just assumed he was doctoring the ball. Nolan Ryan throwing gas, Terry Poole, Craig Reynolds, man. And they played one of the classic NLCSs that has ever been played before or since and came up short. Losing, I think, in 16 innings in game six. Missing the best possible chance at a World Series. Like I said, pain. And they would hit the skids after that pretty much, kind of hovering somewhere around mediocrity to below average. And as a kid, I'll be honest, you don't, and maybe it's also being a kid in the 80s and the early 90s versus being a kid in 2017 to 2020, Sometimes it didn't matter where you were in the pennant race. It was still about going out to watch baseball. I just loved baseball. And then we got Biggio and Bagwell and all of a sudden we got good again. And then it was, it was steamrolling to the playoffs and trading for Randy Johnson and trading for Carlos Beltran and getting to the playoffs and losing to the Braves or losing to the Padres or losing to the Cardinals. And then we broke free in 2005, the greatest sports year of my life. 2005, national championship for the University of Texas baseball and football teams and a first World Series appearance for that team that that was the very probably the very first thing that wasn't, you know, my parents or the family dog that I loved. And it didn't matter that they got swept, I'll be honest. The idea of getting there and listening to that final call on the radio was one of those those moments for me. I was thinking about um, the the kind of new, new-ish Astros-Yankees rivalry. And I'm sure it's very similar to a lot of rivalries for the Texas Longhorns. I'm, I see us as a rival. They probably don't, you know. For them, it's Red Sox and that's it. I get it. 
but I was thinking about it and, you know, when the Astros were in the National League still, that's right, kids, the Astros started out in the National League. I remember being in Bosnia and getting ready to deploy back home and getting an Army Commendation Medal. And uh, my sergeant major was pinning it on me. And he was a big Yankee guy. Like he was from the Bronx. Um, had I mean, just had been watching the Yankees. I mean, he was, well, he was a Vietnam vet. So that gives you an idea how old this guy is. He looked like Gargamel from the Smurfs. Um, he had like four teeth and he didn't smoke his cigar so much as chew them. And I remember him coming and pinning this army commendation medal on me. And when he was supposed to be giving me these words of wisdom as a young enlisted man, getting ready to go off to my next assignment. I would eventually be promoted to a non-commissioned officer. And instead he was going through all these reasons why the Astros would never be as good as the Yankees. And, and I, you know, I, I of course thought it was cool and funny and, and didn't really think about it in those terms because I'm like, well, of course they're not. They won, you know, at the time, I think 25 world series. Like I don't, you know, this isn't, I did not expect them to be as good as the Yankees. It was, had to have been like the beginning of like Jeter and all those guys um, when this was all happening. But I just thought it was interesting because the Astros actually were really good in that period. I think they had the fourth best winning percentage for that period of time. They just kept running into Kevin Brown and they kept running into Greg freaking Maddox and Tom Glavin, all those guys. So it was just funny because again, for as for the best era of Astros baseball to that point, pain. The fact is I didn't really get to minor league baseball until much later in my life. I married a woman from San Antonio and big missions fan, grew up going to missions, um, baseball camps. Those of you might remember from last season, if you heard, there was so much debate about whether Oral Hershiser or Brent Strom taught her at a baseball camp. Turns out it was Brent Strom, um, not Oral Hershiser. But so I really didn't find it until much later in life. I was, uh, I'm an independent filmmaker and doing a lot of work on the independent film circuit. And sometimes you just need a break from that. And I would go find a, a ballpark and go watch, watch a game. And one of the co-creators of the show with me, Scott McIntyre and I ended up at a Tulsa Drillers game. And that was really kind of it. So, you know, it really is a thing that I came to much later in life and really fell in love with it from just a game perspective, a cultural perspective, and, and how all of those teams really reflect their communities. So what is the show? The show is going to have a little bit different feel this year. We're going to start with interviews from people who kind of drive that cultural side of baseball or help reflect it. You know, we've got the curator of the Negro League Museum on this episode. We're going to hear from Astros beat writer Jake Kaplan, not about Astros stuff, but what, what is the life of, an, of a beat writer like? So trying to really paint a picture to some of the people that help drive the game. We're going to, again, most of our focus will be on minor league baseball, the affiliated side of it, the independent leagues, and the collegiate summer leagues. Every week we'll have a team of the week and we'll focus on what they're doing this season, promotions they're having, a little bit about the team history, just a way of, of letting people around the country know about some of the really great baseball that happens. We all travel this country and you're always near professional baseball. And as I've argued and, and will continue to contend that if you sit in a double A ball game and you just watch the baseball, the difference in quality between that and major league baseball is an eyelash. People, I think, think it's like watching the XFL or something. The difference is really, it's, it's so slim. It's like the quote 
in Bull Durham. Like the difference between hitting 250 and hitting 300 is, you know, one extra hit a week, one dying quail, one flare, whatever, and you're in Yankee Stadium, or, or I paraphrase the quote, but you're seeing good baseball. One of the new segments that we're going to have is we're calling Raiders of the Lost Diamond. And we're going to talk about some teams that aren't around anymore and just give a brief window into baseball's past and some of the some of the different teams that we've seen come and go throughout the over 150 years of the history of the game. We'll, you know, look at some teams from the Negro League, some of the old railroad leagues. It's it's going to be a, a lot of fun. The history side of me is something I'm real excited about. And for our MLB coverage, it'll continue the way it did last season. We've expanded our canvas. You know, we've we've got a lot more fans coming on, but we are interested in what it's like to be a Brewers fan or a Yankees fan and experience the team through the eyes of fans. So often, the fans, they're the most important part of the game, but they're the least considered in so many ways from the way the game is covered, from the prices, the way things cost. And so I'm really interested in, in really giving a voice to those people. Just like last year, we have a bunch of road trips planned. I think I'm going to be to 25 new stadiums across the MLB, MILB, Indy, and Collegiate Summer League. But I think the most important reason why and why I think I'm excited about doing this show, baseball is a sport that when it takes root in someone, it grabs hold and doesn't let go. I was thinking about my two-year-old grandson, and I told the story about his unfortunate incident and the running with a guy at Target. I'm not going to get into that again, but, you know, he will look at his, his Astros cap and say, ball, ball, and want to watch baseball on TV. And unfortunately, it's February. Unfortunately for my daughter, it's February because he gets a little inconsolable. But it's obviously grabbed him, and it's not going to let go. Baseball will make you cry, both in sadness and in joy. It'll break your heart more often than not, but it's a part of us. And so it's our sincerest wish from everybody that's a part of this show to be a part of your journey this season and seasons to come. Hopefully you'll you'll love the show and you'll subscribe to us. And twice a week when the Major League Baseball season starts, you'll have something to listen to as you're driving from ballpark to ballpark or going from home to work. So at least for now, thanks for click and play. We have Ray Doswell, the curator of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Scott Walker and Joe Putnam from the State College Spikes are here. And Chattanooga Mayor Andy Burke is here to talk about the Mayor's Task Force to help save minor league baseball. Andy Tom Chesson is back with our first episode of Go Go Astros. Scott McIntyre is back with the Big League Chew. He'll be anchoring that for the rest of the season. So like I said, pack show. Stick with us. Who's on first? The Let's Get To Team of the Week. And thank you for joining our Team of the Week segment brought to you by Zoomer Sports. We're excited to profile the State College Spikes, the short season affiliate for the St. Louis Cardinals. They've been known as the State College Spikes since 2006, and the name has a threefold meaning. The club's official logo depicts a young deer for whom a spike is an undeveloped antler, symbolic of a young ball player that might grow up to a major leaguer someday. It's also a reference to the railroad history of the region and the term spike, as well as the nickname for a baseball player's cleats. They've won the New York Penn League title in 2014 and 2016. They're the short season affiliate, so their season doesn't begin until June 18 of 2020. And to continue talking about the spikes, we have general manager Scott Walker and broadcaster Joe Putnam on the show. Gentlemen, how are you today? We're doing great, Jim. Doing great. So uh, just talk to me a little bit about the State College Spikes and, and 
really, what do they mean to the state college community in Pennsylvania? Well, you know, we're on campus here at Penn State University, so the summers are not quite like the springs and falls. So we have fallen into, I think, our own niche where we've become the summertime destination for folks in Center County and beyond to come together, enjoy a, a beautiful night at the ballpark. Uh, the view is is unmatched. The, uh, the pillar, the iconic image for uh, Happy Valley is Mount Nittany. And the ballpark sits in, sits in such a fashion that Mount Nittany and the valley there beyond is the, the view from center field. And it is just, um, it is epic. It is relaxing. It is gorgeous. And folks just love it. And from, from a uh, philanthropic standpoint, I would say we mean a ton to the community in terms of our ability to give back. Since the inception of the franchise back in 2006, the Spikes have been able to give back through monetary and in-kind donations over $5 million to the Center County community, uh, 500000 in 2019 alone. So I, I'd say that we mean a lot in both um, activities, family fun, affordable entertainment over the summertime when maybe there's not quite as much of it in our area. And then also I think we've integrated ourselves quite well in terms of being involved with the community, a lot of nonprofit efforts on our staff's part. One of the things that I found interesting just doing some research is, you know, so I'm out of Austin, Texas. And so just like where you are, we have a major university and then we also have a thriving minor league team. Um, how do you find that that interesting balance where you guys are the professional league in town and and getting to get some balance and in, in kind of working with Penn State at all as far as, you know, keep, keeping interest in the club going? Sure. Well, uh, we try to stay relevant year round, you know, and that's, I think, where our, our front office staff comes into play. Joe Putnam, for example, uh, certainly does a lot with the spikes. He's our radio broadcaster. I call him our Swiss Army knife. He does a little bit of everything on staff. But Joe was just uh, on air for the Lady Lions basketball team just last night, and he does numerous, numerous things with Penn State University. The, the ballpark, you know, is a year round destination. It's not just a summer destination as well. We operate the facility for Penn State baseball games in the spring. We play host to the state of Pennsylvania's high school baseball championship games. We are open on a football Saturday. Folks can come in. We host a ton of private events on a football Saturday. We're open to the public. Folks can come in, grab a bite to eat, use a warm restroom, hang out for a little bit just across the street from Beaver Stadium. So, And our relationships are, are just fantastic with everybody at the university. Uh, we're fortunate to, to work with everybody in intercollegiate athletics and also the folks at Old Main. And it's it's a truly unique partnership. It was the first of its kind that uh, featured a an affiliated minor league baseball club and a Division I NCAA baseball program. It's first of its kind. There's there's others that have since uh, formed in, in years since. But, uh, you know, we, we love being here. We love being a part of the Happy Valley community and Certainly, we play off of it quite a bit. We've done numerous, uh, you know, legends across the street in forms of bobbleheads and, and appearances and so forth over the years. So we love being a part of Happy Valley, and Penn State's a major part of that. It's funny for a second. You said use a warm restroom, and I had to remember that Pennsylvania and Texas are not the same in the fall and winter. <laughs> so I got a question for Joe real quick. It's something I always like to ask broadcasters. Um, who was a broadcaster growing up that you listened to that kind of helped inform your decision to want to do this? 
Well, growing up uh, in central Pennsylvania, we're right in between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. So you're either a Pittsburgh guy or a Philly guy. I'd say most in our area are Pittsburgh guys. I was one of those. So I grew up listening to Lanny Frater on the Pirates, uh, as well as Greg Brown. Uh, and then uh, for Mike Lang for the Penguins uh, and Bill Hillgrove for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And, and then they certainly were, were very uh, instrumental in, in getting me the idea that I might one day be able to do what they did. Um, and, you know, really about uh, storytelling. Uh, as long as you can tell a good story, especially in baseball, um, I, I think that uh, that's what makes for the best broadcast. And uh, certainly when uh, we're up there in the press box looking out on Mount Nittany in center field, it, it gets you in the right frame of mind to tell a good story and, um, and, and certainly impart the, uh, not just the, the play of the spikes on the field, but the experience of a spikes game to folks who are listening in their cars or in their homes. Uh, we've been fortunate enough to be, listen to worldwide, but, but certainly that's what it's all about is bringing the experience of the ballpark to the folks at home as much as possible. So Scott, you know, um, Joe talked about the, the experience. What is the experience like going to be like for fans, uh, this for 2020, what kind of fun promotions and experiences do you guys have planned? Well, we're very excited. It's hard to believe, uh, we're approaching our 15th season this year. Uh, you know, I remember when I was uh, in college, you know, driving past the ballpark, watching this place being built. Um, it's hard to believe it's been 15 seasons now. So we're going to celebrate that a ton starting opening night, June 18th. We've also done some uh, very heavy analysis and surveys of our fans to figure out exactly what works best for everybody. For example, um, we've noticed that the game times have gotten longer over the years to the tune of 18 minutes on average longer than they were just a few years back. And, you know, I, I've said it a few times in, in different areas, but uh, I, I stand on the concourse at the end of every game and, and wish everybody a good night as they walk out. And more and more, I kept seeing young uh, sons and daughters being carried out, draped over their mom or dad's shoulders before the game was even over, before the fireworks show had taken place or before they got a chance to run around the bases. And, you know, I just, I, I, you know, I hated seeing that. I, you know, a lot of those folks came so that their son or daughter could see the fireworks or run around the bases. So we bumped the game times up by a half an hour Monday through Saturday. So rather than a 7.05 game, we're going to start at 6.35. And I think that will allow a little extra time for folks to be able to take in those unique promotions. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. We also looked at, when uh, fireworks shows were best, when, when did people respond to them? We've traditionally done them on Sunday evenings, but things have changed over the years, and we did a heavy, you know, a very deep analysis into uh, what nights were best to do the fireworks shows, and we found that Fridays and Saturdays were head and shoulders above Sundays. So we've shifted our philosophy. We're going to do fireworks on Friday and Saturday nights. The game time will start at 6.35, a little extra time. And then every Friday and Saturday, you can catch a fireworks show, in, including uh, those a few other nights as well, opening night and the final Sunday home game the night before Labor Day. So we're really just trying to be responsive, make sure we're uh, catering to our fans once. And uh, those are some things I'm excited about. A handful more day games at 4.05 on Sundays now. Folks have been asking year, for years, can we have more day games? Yeah. We're going to do it 4.05 on Sundays. So we got a lot of good stuff planned. Yeah, there's nothing better than a good day game. Um, you know, I, I'm a Houston kid, so I'm not used to getting to sit outside for a baseball game. So when I travel for the show, I love that opportunity. 
Yeah, yeah, we're looking forward to it as a staff, too. I think it's going to be a lot of fun and a very good change that folks will enjoy. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you guys about was your Save Our Spikes initiative. Uh, For those on that list that maybe are uninformed, um, minor league baseball, there was a leaked story that major league baseball was looking at contracting about 42 teams. And the story is sort of snowballed and the spikes were on the list. And so tell me a little bit about the initiative and what people can do and what losing this team would mean to the, you know, the Pennsylvania community. Sure. Well, you know, a lot of folks had been reaching out for months ever since the news came out back in the fall. And they were saying, how can we help? What can we do? But folks really didn't know what they could do or how they could help. So we decided to uh, take a little time, plan accordingly, and unveil our campaign a couple weeks back at the Center County Visitor Center. Our good friends at the Happy Valley Adventure Bureau and the Chamber of Business and Industry for Center County hosted us and our, our partners in our Save Our Spikes campaign. So what we are encouraging folks to do are to pick up various SOS, Save Our Spikes materials, and and display them around town. We've got window signs for businesses and homes. We've got wristbands. We've got lapel pins. We've got beverage coasters and koozies, and we've got mini bat keychains and squishy balls. And our, our staff has been just blanketing the entire area with those promo items all with the goal of directing folks to saveourspikes.com. We created a a website, a URL, saveourspikes.com, that outlines very clear steps on what folks can do to help. Contact elected officials to continue to tell them how much they support the spikes so that the elected officials know just how much uh, the spikes mean to everybody in our area. Also, we want folks to pack the ballpark this summer. We want to be able to show Major League Baseball and the rest of the baseball world how much, in fact, this community does care about the spikes. And one way we feel we can do that is to show up in droves this summer. You know, what better way to say, hey, we care than to come to the ballpark and just see a skyrocket in attendance this year. So really contacting elected officials, displaying the materials, all with the goal to drive folks to that website. Buy season tickets. If you've never got them, get them. Buy them this year. Why leave any doubt? Why have any regret if we don't make it to say, man, I could have done something. I could have been at more games. I could have shown my face and shown my support in that manner throughout the year. So we're really encouraging folks to do that. And I, I would point back to the couple things I said earlier that if we, if we unfortunately were to go away, all the money we're able to raise, all the good we're able to do in the community, the summertime destination we've become, all of that would go by the wayside if this thing were to play out. One of the things, and, and I don't, you know, I don't want to get too much into like slamming the commissioner of baseball or any of that stuff. I do feel like in the research we've done since we, we've been talking about this since the first 538 story leaked in October, and it feels like there's a lot of disingenuous messaging coming from the Major League Baseball's commissioner's office. If you had a chance to sit down with Rob Manford, Manford, what do you think the one thing that you could say to him would be that that is going to make the spikes worth saving. Well, I'm I'm on your side too. I'm not here to to say anything negative about anybody at Major League Baseball. The the thing I can do is I can point to what we mean to the community, and I, and I can show I could show boy, I could show a slideshow that would last for days of pictures of families enjoying the ballpark and and young sons or daughters taking in their very first ever professional baseball game. And what does that mean? to someone that gets to experience that right here in state college and then go on to grow as a fan of both minor and major league baseball alike for years to come. 
you know, I, I could just point to how, how much it would be a detriment to our community. I'd say that's number one. That's our number one focus right now is just showcasing what the, what the spikes mean. You know, I think um, as we wrap up, I think one of the things that they are, that they're misunderstanding is the nature of the baseball fan. I think that people can tune into an NFL game on a weekend and become an NFL fan having never gone. I think maybe the same thing with the NBA. I think you you lose a generation of fans and even a generation of players if minor league baseball is not available at a high level to parts of the country that don't have a major league team. And I think you start to cut those down, you're really going to see a long term, maybe not in the, in the next year or two, but five or 10 years down the road, a real damage to the sport. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I can point to my own experience. I remember my first ever game, geez, almost 25 years ago, I went to a minor league ball game. My, my, uh, baseball coach at the time when I was growing up took his, took the whole team to a minor league ball game. And I remember walking through the gates and I remember the sights and the sounds and the smells coming from the concession stand. And I'll never forget that experience. You know, I'll never forget my first ever minor league baseball game. And I can tell you from then on, it's really all I ever wanted to do was work in minor league baseball. It's my number one favorite thing. I, I love being at the ballpark. I love everything that goes into it. You know, I love meeting with the fans. I love watching uh, at the spikes in particular, I've loved watching 58 players play here and then go on to make it to the major leagues. You know, it's all it's all part of the experience, and and I just love it, and I would hate to see that that change. Well, Scott and Joe, thank you guys so much for your time and for being on our show today. Oh, thank you, Jim. Absolutely. We'll uh, talk to you soon, and uh, we'll be following you all season. So good luck. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. Thank you very much. On deck, the Let's Get To Interview of the Week, brought to you by Fine Line Sportswear. And it is our real privilege and honor on Let's Get To and in our season two premiere to welcome Ray Doswell. He is the vice president and the curator of the Negro League Museum. We are recording it still in the dead of winter. Ray, how's it going over there? A little snowy here in Kansas City, but um, uh, it's good to be talking about baseball. I think it's always good to be talking about baseball. So how did you get interested in baseball in the first place? I don't imagine someone ends up curating that museum if they just don't have a love from the game from the beginning. Well, you'd be surprised. Um, I don't think you have to be a baseball lover to uh, manage this museum, although it does help. Uh, But I grew up in St. Louis where uh, we were taught baseball pretty early on. not an athlete, but uh, you get a great appreciation for good baseball growing up uh, a St. Louis Cardinals fan. And so um, I had that background. Uh, and more importantly, I have an interest in African-American history, which is um, my uh, studies or expertise, if you will. So to be able to marry that interest along with uh, an interest in baseball has been a very rewarding career for me. I think – it's interesting with the history of baseball and race relations and then in some ways the history of the U.S. military with race relations as well, that it often ends up becoming the experiment for America at large. You can do things in those microcosm. But when you talk about the history of the Negro Leagues and everything, like how did that become an interest for you to dive so deep as as being part of this museum? 
Well, I was fortunate just to be able to get the opportunity to work here at the uh, museum once I finished my graduate studies. Uh, to be frank, I had studied more jazz music and African-American folk music uh, as a graduate student. But the museum was in its infancy when I was looking for opportunities and uh uh, I had gone to school in California, uh, graduate work, and what, being originally from the Midwest, the opportunity came to me. I, I would say, though, that once I came here, I was certainly not an expert in the Negro Leagues by any means. Um, and would even say that I was not a baseball historian or baseball history enthusiast per se, but I did enjoy the game. Um, since then, I've come to understand the context that baseball played in African-American history from the standpoint of what it meant to community, what it meant to economics, and to the point you just made about uh, baseball and the military, which actually are very intertwined uh, amongst themselves, um, being uh, an opportunity or became opportunities to experiment with uh, integration in particular. Um, and that's fascinating to me. And I think it be it becomes fascinating to a lot of visitors who come in as baseball fans. And yes, they're aware that obviously there was segregation in America and was it a shame that these ballplayers didn't get a chance to play in the major leagues. But once they're able to see the broader story of the connections between the ball teams and the individual players, the ownership to the community and how uh, these things didn't happen in a vacuum. Baseball sometimes is seen as this bastion of fair play and something that every child wanted to do um, when they were growing up, especially when you think about the golden age of baseball, as it's said, the 30s, the 40s, and so on. But in the backdrop was some really serious stuff that's happening in the United States, the wars, and of course, race relations, and how base, baseball, particularly the Negro Leagues, allows us to unwrap to discuss those issues uh, in a very detailed way. Uh, and and the, the opportunity that baseball had to bridge the gap between the races. Um, and at the same time, it's seen as very noble, but it was also an economic necessity in some respects that in order for the country to move forward, um, the issues of segregation and oppression and, and, and all these things had to be resolved in order for the country to move forward together. Uh, and baseball became one of the first crucibles to test that. You talked a little bit about what the, these teams meant to their communities. And I asked that question of what, you know, for you to expand on that, what did they mean knowing that, you know, I don't know how much you're following the, proposal of Major League Baseball to contract the minor leagues, but it seems like at, at times people's in ba people in baseball, the higher levels, don't understand really how connected a community is to the ball team. So talk about the old Negro League teams and kind of how do they connect with those communities? Let me first uh, quote um, as something that's been attributed to former Commissioner Faye Vincent. Uh, even though it's a shame in some respects uh, that there had to be a Negro Leagues in the first place. Uh, thank God for the Negro Leagues, he would say, because had it not been for the Negro Leagues, then there would not have been an opportunity for certain talents to develop. Uh, those talents would maybe have gone to other sports or maybe not have 
been able to showcase in any way. Uh, can you imagine the history of baseball without a Willie Mays, without a Henry Aaron, without a Jackie Robinson? And Robinson in particular played other sports. He played football. He played uh, basketball. Uh, but to, if there was not a Negro League, there would not have been an outlet for those athletes to play baseball at all, at least professionally. And so the Negro Leagues afforded that, and because they were so good, they helped pave the way uh, for integration in America, but also for these great athletes to change the game itself. So um, the Negro Leagues was there for that. And then within the connection of the communities, uh, that extends to the fans, Uh, fans being able to enjoy baseball. And this isn't to say that black fans didn't enjoy watching the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Detroit Tigers and things like that. But to be able to have a team in your community to rally around uh, was something special, especially for African-Americans who, like many cities, Kansas City as an example, built neighborhoods like our neighborhood where our museum is, 18th and Vine, which was, uh, you know, away from all the hardship of what was happening with racism in the country. They were able to build this world for themselves, build their own businesses, build their own schools, build their own churches. Um, uh, and among those businesses were baseball teams. And really thrive within that world, although from the outside there were lots of barriers. But because they were able to build that world, there was a great deal of community, there was a great deal of self-awareness, there was a great deal of pride. And baseball was at the center of that. And in many respects, uh, for, it was part of the economic engines of some of these communities as well. So those connections are very important. Um, to have pride in those players, some of those players were superstars in their community but may not have been known in the mainstream uh, so much. But they were the celebrities of the day. But I'll add another layer to that in that the the black athlete and those ball players still were not segregated from the segregation. They were stars in their own sphere. Uh, but unlike athletes today who could separate themselves from the population, uh, these black athletes, they went to the same restaurants, they stayed at the same hotels, uh, and that included the musicians, the jazz musicians who were famous during that day who had to, to play in the big halls of the hotels downtown but still had to come back to the black community because of segregation or to find a place to stay and a place to eat and those kinds of things. So um, it made it for a tight-knit community uh, in that regard. The Negro Leagues are turning 100 years this year. I feel like sometimes we forget lessons that are learned in history. I think that's the – I'm also, I also have a history degree and in addition to a film degree. And that's the big quote, right, that if you ignore it, you're doomed to repeat it. We are seeing mm-hmm. in this country people w- walking with swastikas on, right? Like we don't forget that we all lost so many people 70-something years ago. Why do you think it's important yeah. that people are visiting the Negro League Museum and learning about – um, this entire generation of baseball that was lost to mainstream mainstream America, really? That's a good question in terms of, especially since I've been here a little while now, and, I, and I'm always fascinated by the motivation of visitors when they come in um, and how that has evolved and how the different learners have come through and that has evolved over time. I think... And especially in the last uh, 
15, 20 years where we've seen uh, in the country, uh, I think it's fair to say that one of the heights of African-American history is the fact that we've had an African-American president. Uh, from that to a period where we have a complete reversal uh, in the the thoughts and mores of the person and leadership. Um, and and those things you just mentioned that have seemed to have arisen, um, some would say in part because of that, um, which makes learning this story more important than ever uh, as, as, a, as an opportunity to discuss those very difficult issues. Um, and I find that sports has been a very good on-ramp to discussing these very difficult issues because uh, even though you may have lots of different political views and we get folks in from all stripes of religion, politics, nationality that come through, even if they don't understand baseball, they understand this notion of segregation or this sense of even our international visitors understand a sense of like apartheid kind of feeling. Um, they People rally around sport. And uh, so sport gives us a good entree for for discussing these issues. And I think uh, a lot of visitors come because they love the game of baseball and they just they want to be entertained and understand those stories. Uh, others uh, do want to dive into those issues a little deeper and feel this is a safe way to get into that. Um, and I think uh, it's it's real important that we're here. I think it's important that people recognize that it's been a hundred years since the founding of the leagues, and I'm pretty proud of the fact that people are still interested. Now that it's been well over 40, 50 years since the league ended, that there's still interest in this history. Um, and so I credit the work we've done, but there are many others around the country who've done a lot to promote this history through books and film and other opportunities. And so it still captures people's imaginations. They're great heroes and anti-heroes in this story. They're uh, a great lessons to be learned from the standpoint of perseverance and and courage and uh, entrepreneurship that I think resonate with all audiences, uh, regardless of your background. One of the things that I think where I learned the most about the Negro League was through Ken Burns' documentary, um, Baseball. Buck O'Neill's probably my favorite part of the whole thing. But a lot of the, even like the white major leaguers of the day were talking about some of the stars in the Negro Leagues that they weren't able to play against. And there are some names that we know. Obviously, we know Jackie Robinson and we know Satchel Paige. But who are some of the other players you think that would be, we would learn about at the museum that maybe we don't talk about that really stood out? Among the more prominent players that a lot of people may not have heard of is Oscar Charleston. And uh, I can refer people to a more a recently published biography of Charleston, uh, which just came out late uh, this year by Arthur and Jeremy Beer. But he is uh, among Negro League historians, and I think those who are in the know of baseball among baseball Hall of Fame inductees is one of the giants of, of black baseball history. In many respects, he's pre-Negro League because his career started before the official formation of the Negro Leagues and was already a very prominent athlete then, but uh, was a superstar player, got to travel internationally to play baseball, was a military veteran, ran track and fields from Indianapolis, known as the Hoosier Comet, uh, is what his nickname. Um, and what was unique about him is that uh, he had the abilities uh, of, say, 
arguably one of the greatest baseball players of all time, Ty Cobb. But he also had the same level of temperament as <laughs> Ty Cobb, which uh, uh, was uh, noted in some would say that he was the black Ty Cobb. Um, in that respect. But he was also a sharp baseball leader. He was a manager later in his career and truly a superstar. Um, Buck O'Neill used to say uh, when Willie Mays came up as a young player that uh, the, the player that they tried to find a, a com- to compare him to as a player was Oscar Charleston. And Willie Mays is, for many people, is considered the greatest player of all time. So you know how good Oscar Charleston is. The idea that you brought Buck O'Neill up and I think my favorite part of the Ken Burns doc again was him and he was talking about – and it's a little off topic but you know, baseball's is entering a lot of crossroads right now with this minor league baseball thing with – there's going to be another work stoppage. But Buck O'Neill had said that every time you think baseball's dead, just listen for that crack and you'll, you'll know that baseball's <laughs> So with the centennial coming up. What are the plans for the museum to honor it? And do you know if Major League Baseball has any anything planned? You know, they did a whole thing for their 150th season. Is there anything that they're going to do to recognize the Negro Leagues? Well, we're working uh, specifically with MLB on something that's more of a league-wide recognition uh, that uh, is not ready to be announced yet, uh, but you can anticipate something. Um, at the same time, the museum has often worked with individual teams uh, over the years to do all kinds of things related to the Negro Leagues. Um, most notably, our team here in Kansas City, the Royals, do an annual salute to the Negro Leagues where they and their team opponents usually wear um, uh, throwback uniforms uh, most of the time, but not all the time, uh, that are related to Negro League teams or teams of that era. So we can anticipate that again. Uh, that date hasn't been formally announced, but it will be sometime uh, early in the season, probably around the middle of May. Uh, in addition, um, we sometimes help other teams uh, do similar activities across the country. Um, the Detroit Tigers have done a similar celebration uh, for well over 20 years. Pittsburgh Pirates have also done similar celebrations. So I think you might anticipate uh, seeing at least those two cities, if not more, uh, do uh, the throwback games. Uh, and we will have um, small traveling exhibits going around the country. Uh, schedule uh, is still being worked out, but major league ballparks and minor league ballparks will have featured activities um, so there'll be the Negro Leagues, and of course, there's the annual celebrations of Jackie Robinson, which usually happen around mid-April as well. Teams will do African-American Heritage Nights, and we are here to support them in that effort. Here in Kansas City, uh, there'll be more of a ceremonial commemoration of the actual anniversary itself on February 13th. Uh, and then at the end of the year, uh, we normally have uh, an end-of-the-year gala and the the gala this year, of course, will focus on the centennial, which will be around mid-November. November 14th is the, is the working date for that. And in between, you'll see uh, all kinds of smaller activities uh, related to um, the anniversary. Mostly activities that we always do, but they'll have the theme of the centennial. I will say also, finally, that um, you can expect a presence uh 
of the museum and the the history at the All-Star Game, which has been traditional now for the last few years. Uh, we've assisted Major League Baseball with uh, a display during the FanFest exhibit. And I think uh, there'll be some extra attention paid to it because of the theme of the centennial. Uh, and there may be other exhibits uh, around the All-Star site city uh, in addition to the FanFest exhibit, which will be uh, in Los Angeles this year. So there's some residents there to be able to be on the West Coast uh, and promote this history. I think uh, I love the idea of the traveling exhibit. And once we that schedule comes out, we'll make sure that our listeners find out about it. Uh, Mr. Doswell, thank you so much for being on Let's Get Two in our season premiere of our second season. And we are going to, I think my wife and I are going to make a special trip up to Kansas City just to come to the museum and we'll make sure we look you up. Please do make room for barbecue and uh, you'll have a good time. This just in, news from Minor League Baseball. So even though we are have not even seen the first pitch for the 2020 Minor League Baseball season, it doesn't mean that Minor League Baseball is not still in the news. We're still struggling with the news that Major League Baseball has planned to contract up to 42 Minor League Baseball teams. And we're excited to be talking with Chattanooga Mayor Andy Burke about the plan. Mr. Mayor, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you. I want to talk to you a little bit about The Lookout. So our show is a culturally focused minor league baseball show. I grew up in Houston, Texas. I didn't have minor league baseball. Discovered it when my film career started and actually made it out to a Lookouts game last year. And it was a blast. Went all the way from Austin. Talk to me a little bit about The Lookouts and what they mean to Chattanooga. Well, I'm so happy to know that you attended the game. I, I didn't realize that when uh came on the show. Um, the lookouts are really important to our city like they are to many uh, of the places that have minor league teams. You know, we're always looking to ensure that families have options. We know that some people love music and some people like art and um, there's there's tons of things for people to do. We want We want everybody in our community to have options. And we know that minor league baseball is one of the most affordable options that families have in our community. And so the other day, um, you know, a father was coming up to me, telling me about um, he had uh, several kids, um, and he says I picked them all to the game because a I can afford it, and b some of them, right. some of my kids really like the baseball, uh, but other of my kids love the entertainment piece, and so you've got this, you've got this piece of of the uh, community that loves it. On top of that, um, you know, you have the jobs and the revenue that it provides for the community. And it's a place that uh, you know the, that that has pride in our baseball team. Uh, it's been around since 1885, so this is a longstanding tradition in our city. It's funny, or I guess not funny, but so you know, I do this baseball podcast, and the way the story gets leaked out is pretty dishonest. And I'll kind of walk you through our end of it. So, because we've been talking about this since April, when a anonymous article on 538 comes out talking about the way the Astros do minor league baseball and how other teams are going to copy it. And then it, it, we started talking about the, the story and then it seemed to escalate. And then it was going to be, well, it's just going to be a, you know, low a teams that might go away. And then I look and some of the most iconic double a teams, including the lookouts are on that list. How did you find out that about the potential contraction? Did you find out like I did through the media or did someone at least call you? How did that exactly go for the people of Chattanooga? Well, um, when, when I started hearing about the contraction of, of uh, minor league baseball, 
I did not think that Chattanooga would be even potentially on the list. Um, so Forbes just came out with an article saying that we're uh, slated to have the largest job growth in the country in 2020. We have one of the hottest real estate markets in the country. Lots of things in our community are going right. And so my natural inclination was, well, that, that stinks, but that's going to be somebody else's problem because, of course, Major League Baseball wants to be in Chattanooga given given what's happening in our overall city. And so the way I found out about it was through the media, through the article in the New York Times that came out that listed Chattanooga as one of the teams. And somebody contacted me and said, hey, Chattanooga's on the list, which you know I just was shocked by. Um, and then I, I heard from the owner of the team, and we started talking about it. And even then, to be honest with you, I still thought, I, I just can't believe that they would make this kind of short-sighted decision. But one of the things that, that you know, I've certainly relayed to Major League Baseball and to others is that, you know, we're cities around the country are part of this equation. Uh, they're a part of the equation for lots of different reasons, including the fact that many of them own the stadiums that uh, that the teams play in. The stadium is, which I'm more than happy to talk about, is one of the reasons that this is the reason that we're on the list. Um, so, so uh, you know, I, I just said, if we're part of the equation, you know, you can't leave us uh, in the dugout. We need to be in the game when you make these decisions. So one of the things that I think um, people don't pay attention to is the role that government has in some things. And I would, I would argue that sometimes government needs to be involved. Make the case, though, that this is definitely a situation, because we've had Congresswoman Trahan on the show as well, talking about the, the, the congressional task force they have. Why does government need to be involved in this issue? Well, I think it's, it's smart for Major League Baseball and others to include us. You do have, when you talk about the, the federal government side, of course, that you have issues with regard to wage exemptions that, that Major League Baseball has, as well as, of course, the antitrust exemption, which is a huge benefit to Major League Baseball. And then from, from our standpoint, many cities around the country have invested tens of millions of dollars in the stadium uh, that these Minor League Baseball uh, teams play in. And they frequently own the property that, that, that's around them. And one of the things that, that I've tried to, um, to tell Major League Baseball is that, you know, you want to have greater investment in the stadium. That's what you're saying to people, and particularly to people like me. And the t- contraction uh, discussion actually has exactly the opposite effect because – why would anybody build a stadium at, with the risk that the team is going to go away, even if not this time, then the next time or the time after that? And so for me, um, you know, I think that it's creating a lot of uncertainty and government um, is a big player in this on top of the effect that it has on our communities and employment, which, of course, is substantial. Yeah, I, I, I keep – Again, I got really shook by the story when the lookouts were on it, mostly because of the amazing time I had when I was there. Um, 
going at, you know, meeting, meeting the team and all in meeting season ticket holders and hanging out with them and talking and thought to myself, this is where baseball belongs. And then I read this. I think one of the things that major league baseball is missing is that they are growing their own fan base by people's ability to go to a team like the lookouts and watch them play. And they're missing out on possible talent who maybe would have played football or basketball, but they went to a lookouts game once and fell in love with the game. Can you speak to the, the homegrown aspect of what baseball means? Well, I think lots of people in our community experience baseball at its highest level through the lookouts. That's, that's where they go and they watch games. And again, lots and lots of kids go there either with a big group uh, through group ticket sales or with their family. And they watch, I mean, these are highly skilled players um, and it's exciting. It's fun. And you, if you go to a game and you're a kid, I played, I played baseball when I was young. I'm a baseball fan. You know, I, you want to be part of the sport. I think the other piece <clears throat> that baseball is really missing out on is the connection that it that it breeds to uh, to other teams. You know, uh, we we were formerly a Dodgers affiliate, and a few years ago, um, Yasiel Puig essentially went virtually. I, I don't remember if he even made a you know, got a cup of coffee at, at AAA, but he essentially went from, from the lookouts to the Dodgers. And if you were following major league baseball at the time, you remember he just came out on fire. Like he jumped to the major leagues and he just came out with an amazing, uh, some amazing games and stats. And everybody in Chattanooga was, well, we were watching the Dodgers and watching major league baseball because there's a guy who just a few weeks ago was in Chattanooga. Um, and so that fan base in places that are growing like Chattanooga is really important to Major League Baseball. I don't understand why they want to you know, want to do anything that would upset it, particularly you know, if you see the ongoing uh, issues with, uh, with sign stealing and others that baseball is having. Yeah, again, as an Astros fan, I'm well aware of the sign-stealing allegations. And it's funny because, you know, speaking to that, of all the things that the Astros have kind of been involved in, and they really started this plan, that's probably – the sign-stealing is probably the thing I'm the least angry at them about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, my understanding is that this was at one time called the Houston plan. Um, And, uh, you know, I – I know that the major league owners are sitting down this weekend to consider, you know, to, at their regular meeting, and I'm sure this is going to be on the agenda. And one of the things that we want to do is just say, hey, this, you know, this is not the right time or place for these discussions. Well, if you can talk to me, I mean, you guys are going to do something about it. Talk to me a little bit about the task force that y'all have put together. Well, we have more than a hundred mayors that are signed up for it. Obviously, there are only forty-two cities that are uh, inherently affected, um, or at least right now on the list that we we believe exists. So, it's many more than that, and it goes speaks to that idea that the uncertainty creates a lot of you know problems not only for the teams on the list, but also for the teams that theoretically uh, are going to continue uh, beyond the contraction. So 
Um, so what we're doing is trying to make our views known to Major League Baseball, trying to make our views known to minor league owners to ensure that they understand where we are to get more of a seat at the table. Also to hear what uh, Major League Baseball has to say about these issues and to see if we can um, come to some better understandings about uh, what the what the possibilities are. Uh, we also want to communicate and speak for our fans. So that's one of the jobs that mayors have every day is to speak on behalf of the people of their city. We're very practically minded. Mayors typically are not, you know, people who are just talking just for the sake of of hearing themselves uh, speak. You know, we're trying to get things done, and we need, to, you know, we're speaking on behalf of the residents of our city to say that we've all invested a lot in all kinds of different ways in our teams, and we want them to stay. Last thing then, what could, what would you suggest to our listeners? How can they get involved to help keep this thing going? Well, first of all, let Major League Baseball know how you feel. Um, second of all, um, you can always uh, sign up um, on our uh, major on our um, uh, task force by contacting me. I'm mayor at chattanooga.gov. Uh, again, mayor at chattanooga.gov. Send me an email, and we'll give you some more information about various places that that we're going to um, to try to activate people. I think there'll be more opportunities along the way for people to um, to get involved. And but most of all, you know, uh, if there's a hundred mayors that are signed up, there's a lot in your community, and so make sure you support them or ask your local mayor to be part of the task force. Well, Mayor Burke, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to be on our show, and, and we will keep pushing the issue from here, and hopefully Major League Baseball will open up and see how important teams like the Lookouts are to the game. Thank you so much. And now, the Big League Chew, and I on the Majors. And so we're back on Let's Get Two, and we are here for... Uh, the first edition of the Big League Chew, and we're excited to have Scott McIntyre ready to host this thing to hold it down for the next 2020 uh, baseball season. Scott, how are you? Man, I'm great. I'm going to try to hold this down. I've been working out so I can keep it held down. <laughs> keep, it, keep it held down. Uh, yeah, Today, yeah, pitchers yeah. and catchers are showing up, man. It's like the day of possibilities. It it completely is. It, it's when uh, Florida becomes known for more than wild news stories. For ruining elections and pythons <laughs> eating alligators. I got you. So, you know, before hanging, we hang, no more hanging chads, only hanging curveballs. I like it. I like it. So, before we jump into this, you know, this is the time of year, um, and it's made in light of the Astro scandal where Pete Rose once again tries to get into the Hall of Fame. And that's the big, the big debate is whether he should or shouldn't. And I honestly, we did not, we did no show prep for this. I don't know where you stand. I will tell you where I stand. Um, I am of the opinion. That Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame because his crimes were committed as a manager, not a player. And I question sometimes the validity of the morality clause in the Baseball Hall of Fame. What about you? Pete Rose was my favorite player growing up. I ran to first base when I drew a walk in uh, Little League because Pete Rose did that. Uh Pete Rose's crimes were committed primarily. He admits here, here's the difference in, in what you just said okay. and what Rob Manfred has shown. And Pete Rose admits to betting on baseball 
and on his team in 1987 when he was a manager. He does not admit to betting on baseball in 1985 and 1986 when he was a player manager, including 1986 championship team. But Rob Manfred has shown in the past in his um, his statement that, that came out, I think 2015, whatever it was, uh, the last time Rose went at this. One of the things uh, that Manfred said w- was that uh, we have a notebook that shows it proof that Pete Rose was placing bets during that championship run in 1986 when he was a player manager, when he appeared in 72 games and had 200 and some odd at bats. Um, so uh, the, the, the thing is, whenever we go back and, and we look, okay, where should somebody be in the game? Should they be in the Hall of Fame or not? Well, what does the rule say? What, what does the specific rule about this say? And, you know, it, it came in after the Black Sox scandal. But rent, rule 21D2 states that any player, umpire, or club, or league official, or employee who shall bet any sum whatsoever mm-hmm. upon any baseball game in connection with which the better has a duty to perform shall be declared permanently ineligible. There's no, It doesn't give may be declared permanently <laughs> ineligible at the discretion of – there's no – the discretionary choice of the commissioner is taken out here. So in my opinion, it is a very clearly well stated. Um, also, I will say that rule 21 G states that rule 21 is it in its entirety, the in all caps and big bold letters in, in the rule book says the rule to be kept posted, a printed copy in English and Spanish of this rule 21 shall be kept posted in each clubhouse. So you can't say you didn't know about it. You can't say it's not in the rule book. Rule 21D1 says, hey, if you're betting on the game in a game that you don't have anything to do with, you're going to be ineligible for a year. It says if you bet on a game and you did have anything to do with it, you're gone for good. There's there's no – I mean, all Pete had to do was not bet on the game. Uh, that's all he had to do, not bet on it. And he chose to bet on it. Uh, and do so in an illegal manner. Um, and furthermore, uh, when he, in terms of the 1989 agreement that he signed, I will remind everyone of this. My hero, Pete Rose, signed an agreement to be banned for life. And in that, it was stated if you if you make changes to quote reconfigure end quote your life. You can be brought back, and, and we can review this and potentially become an, become eligible again. Well, the last time it was checked, he admits, yeah, I still bet on sports, and yeah, I still bet on baseball. Uh, uh, his his permanent home, his residence is in Las Vegas. And um, the last attempt that he admitted to be reinstated without knowing that Rob Manfred had that notebook of all the stuff he had done in 1986, he told him, give me everything you've done. Just Just come clean. Tell me everything. He never brought up anything about 1986. He only brought it up about 1987. So um, I hate to say it, but Pete Rose should not be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. I mean, some of that stuff I didn't know, honestly. So it kind of changes my opinion, too. One of the things that I hate, though, is I hate the people say, well, he bet on his team to win. And for me, that means you don't understand baseball, that if if you're betting that you're going to – if you know – I'm going to bet Saturday night on the Reds to win. You're going to manage the Reds differently on Friday night. You're, you are going to maybe not use your best reliever if you know that you're going to be trying to win the next day. It, it, because of the way baseball works and it's about series and not about individual games, 
when you're betting on your team to win certain games, you are by definition going to manage differently on those other games to ensure you have the best chance to win the following night. Correct. Let's say you and I are managing opposing teams or let's say we're playing on opposing teams or I'm a manager over here, you're a manager over there. And I say, look, man, um, kind of in a bind. The ex-wife is asking for a little more in alimony. I'm kind of hurting this month. Um, I'm going to put 50K on my team to win Saturday night over you. Be quiet about it. I'm, I don't want to get you involved in this anyway, but just make sure I win. You haven't placed a bet. You've done me a solid, or maybe you're getting something on the side from me, steak dinner, 10K, whatever. <laughs> you you have not officially bet on baseball. You did not officially bet on the game, but you did adjust your strategy, especially if it's an August or September game against the Tigers and the Orioles. And who cares? Who's paying attention? Somebody's going to lose nine to seven. Doesn't matter who does. Um, so those are the types of things. It, it, yeah, I completely agree with you. It doesn't matter if you only bet to win. You still have a way to adjust um, the outcome. Yeah, I think it's um, it's weird because I didn't. I, I, I'm kind of starting to feel like Pete Rose is, is, and maybe I'm late to the party on this, but kind of a reprehensible human being. Like to see him through all of this scandal as baseball tries to figure out this league-wide situation they have as far as how we interact with technology to kind of try to grab, climb over the shoulders of these people that they try to figure it out to say, but I'm not as bad as them. You're right, because we're in the wild, wild west with this whole sign-stealing technology video stuff. Um, you broke a hundred-year-old rule that was written in a clubhouse, so you really shouldn't have an excuse. Yeah, it's posted everywhere. But I'll, I'll remind people of this, too. The Baseball Hall of Fame uh, is littered with people who were morally reprehensible characters. Uh, Ty Cobb once beat a man with no arms uh, in the stands because he was making fun of him. He was he was Ty Cobb left the field of play and went up and punched a guy that had no arms. Ty Cobb was the guy that would sharpen his spikes. He would sharpen his and spikes. Making and making it known for people sliding into second. Yeah. You are correct. Ty Cobb was not a nice person. If you go back and look at his history of, of, of what happened with his family and growing up and what he witnessed, you can kind of tell why he wasn't such a nice guy. There's plenty. Ty Cobb's the one at the top of the list. You know, Babe Ruth was a was trapped in a child's body forever, or not a, a child's mind with a with a grown man's body, uh, having a blast. Um, I'll I just it, there's not a popularity contest. Uh, you can do drugs and you can get back in. They give you chances. But look, the big no-no, the apple on the tree that you can't eat is gambling and gambling on your sport. And, and I liked, um, you know, Hammer and Hank, Hank Aaron himself recently was in an interview and they asked him, should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame because of the sign-stealing scandal and, you know, players not getting imposed penalties on this and everything. And Hank uh, said, no, flat out, no, he should not be in the Hall of Fame. No. And um, it, it's known. You, you don't bet. You don't bet. You shouldn't you shouldn't tweak the outcome. Uh, tweak the outcome of the game. So, uh, yeah, I love Pete Rose. I love the way Pete Rose played the game. He uh, to me, he and Tony Gwynn are two of the best pure hitters uh, to just slap hitters, get on base, go do your thing that I will ever see in my life. But Pete threw away his opportunity to be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. So let me ask you this as we wrap it up then, because obviously gambling is about to become a part of Major League Baseball again. 
there is a lot of um, conspiracy theories as to why um, Manfred has short has basically um, now we know kind of flubbed even the Astros investigation and won't let it go because he, we he needs to be very careful about the idea of the number of teams that are basically stealing signs. Um, but with with gambling about to become part of the the um, the equation, does that change the math on Pete Rose for you? No, it really doesn't because the rule was the rule was the rule when he did it. It's the same way that for me, I I support Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens being in the Hall of Fame because they did not break a hard coded rule when they were doing steroids and human growth hormones. Um, it, it what they were doing wasn't by the book illegal. And what they were doing wasn't by the uh, the book anything against the rules of baseball. Sign stealing, on the other hand, I think why it's being swept under the rug. Also, we the, the two times that baseball almost lost itself, the last two times that baseball almost lost itself were the, were the steroid scandal and the uh, and the strike. Right, everything went crazy after the strike, uh, and. and you know, you, you're you're losing way too much baseball. I think what baseball is looking at here, going okay, and I have said this before when you and I were talking about it. I think Manfred sent a note to everybody, saying, "All right, see what I did there. I'm I'm doing it worse the next time. We're not putting up with this crap anymore. We're not going to bring it up anymore because we don't want this to become a big scandal that's constantly in the news cycle. The only time it's really on the news cycle right now is because nobody else has anything to talk about. Once we're rolling in spring training and the Astros apologies have come out and everybody, you know, AJ Hinch did his and, and everything was shut up. No, go to the side. Uh, and it'll be a footnote, but there, if you keep it in the headlines, if you're major league baseball and this stays in the headlines, what possible good can it do for you? It can't do anything. It can just bring down your ratings. People saying, Oh yeah, see well, now it's a crooked game on top of that. These guys are getting overpaid. Uh, they'll probably go on strike in a year or two anyway. Uh, forget this. In a time when baseball is really losing fans, so I, I think, I think Manfred, um, you know, I've had time to to really think about this a little bit harder. I, I think he's trying to act in the best interest of baseball overall. Whether I agree with it or not, I can still see the logic in what he's doing. Yeah, I think he's. I, I would say he's acting in the best short term interest, and might be ignoring some long term interest there. All right, so final question then: Pete Rose has a lifetime ban. Do you feel like once he's dead, they will let him in? Uh, you got to put in shoeless Joe first. Okay. All right, Scott. So um, I, I hope you're as excited as I am because, you know, you're going to be back next week and we're going to start. So the way it's going to go is that, you know, this is your segment and you're going to be taking macro views at baseball and then we'll be filtering it in with fans of other teams that come on and talk about their squad. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun this year. I think it'll be a blast. Um, lo looking forward to some of these, to seeing how some of the rule changes that are coming up this year and seeing how those will uh, will really play into the game and really ready to talk baseball again and not all the, you know, I it, it would have been so nice if all of our offseason conversations, Jim, were about, hey, look where this guy signed and look at this trade that just happened. And, whoa, Mookie Betts is going to be a Dodger. Get out of town. David Price is going with him. What a salary dump Boston's doing. We haven't had time to talk about all that because all the other garbage that's going on. So I'm ready for the BS to clear and let's start talking about hanging curves. Well, we will be talking about uh, about all of that stuff next week. Scott, thanks so much for being on and I can't wait to be back on once we can actually have some spring training to actually talk about. Absolutely, brother. Take it easy. Go, go Astros. A focus on H-Town Hardball. Joining us this week and 
every other week until well, well past the end of the season is our Go Go Astros correspondent, Andy Tomchesson. Andy, pitchers and catchers reported today. How do you feel? The void is over. And that's so exciting. It's, you know, like Christmas Day for baseball fans. It really is. And uh, it's a team showing up very different than the one that showed up to West Palm last year with a new manager and a new general manager hired in that order uh, as a result of the Major League, of Major League Baseball's actions and Jim Crane's decision to move in a new direction. I want to talk a little bit about the manager, first of all. What are your thoughts on having Dusty Baker as the skipper for the team? Are you excited? Are you worried? Are you in, in, in a heavy wait and see mode? Where are you? Where are you with that? Well, you know, in the interest of the, the general tone of this podcast and trying to keep things positive, uh, you don't want to talk about your initial reaction. How I want to answer. Uh, Dusty Baker is going to be fine. Um, he's not a long-term play for the Astros. I think both sides know that. I think that's why you have a one-year contract with a one-year option because those sides are going to feel each other out. Um, this is Dusty's last hurrah, his last chance to win a championship as a manager. Um, and I, th- I think he acknowledged as much uh, during his press conference uh, introducing him to the team. My concerns with him um, are historical, and, and I will be the first to admit most of them are 20 years old. Um, but I watched him when the Astros were still in the National League, and I watched him grind through the Giants pitching staff and grind through the Cubs pitching staff and grind through the Reds pitching staff. And so I would be disingenuous to state that I wasn't a little bit concerned with his approach towards pitchers. Now, having said all that, his last run with the Nationals, he seems to have adapted. Um, and honestly, I think he lost that job in Washington, not because of anything he did or didn't do, just it was time for the organization to make a change because they tried the same thing over and over. If he sticks to his word and does what he says he's going to do um, from the standpoint of incorporating analytics and matching that with his gut um, I think it'll be a positive experiment. Um, I think the first sign of trouble you'll notice is if you notice George Springer's healthy and not hitting lead lead off. That's when you know he's gotten a little bit too far into um, roster tinkering. Yeah, so that was going to be my first one, my first of two questions because I knew the pitching staff would come up, and you know my hope is that the scenario was Dusty, you were hired for a lot of reasons. You are, I think, a great ambassador to the game. You've already noticed some of the press's vitriol toward the Astros died down the minute he was hired because people can't, like even, I I watched the interview with Mad Dog and who I generally speaking actually don't find nearly as obnoxious as most people do, but even his sort of, you could tell you can't go after Dusty Baker the way you might be able to go after anyone else. Uh, To your point, Dusty even made a joke. I don't want a five-year contract. I wanted to retire at 70 and I'm already 72. Like I don't, like I'm not trying, or I'm going to be 72. So, um, but, but the leading, hitting Springer leadoff, my hope is that he's going to listen to Brett Strom and he's going to listen to Joe Espada about how this team was built to play. So what do you think the odds are that he keeps Springer at leadoff? I think, you know, I think what Baker does have, we talk a lot about what he doesn't have. I think what he does have is a reputation as being a player's manager, especially being a former, um, you know, borderline Hall of Famer, but really a a great offensive player in his day. 
I, I think he's going to come in and listen to the players, listen to their concerns, and look at how they've been most successful in the past. And the Astros have a lot of success to show him from the recent past. Um, my concern is, yeah, he comes in and tinkers and does, falls into some of his really old patterns of slow guys who don't steal bases shouldn't be taking walks because they're just cluttered up the base paths, blah, 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 blah. I, I don't, I didn't see him manage that way in Washington during his last tenure. So I think Springer's safe. I think Bregman's going to be allowed to take walks when he doesn't get anything to hit. Because this is the same manager who had Barry Bonds who walked all the time and just refused after a while to swing at anything that wasn't a strike. Um, so it's not like he's foreign to that concept. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Baker was hired to handle the media, to manage day-to-day with a really light hand, and I think allow the organization to make a decision on Joe Espada. Um, I, I think his recommendation about Joe's ready or not ready is going to go a long way towards saying who the next manager is. Um, and I think he'd be foolish not to allow Brett Strom to continue to handle the pitchers. And I think the pitchers would tell him that too. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it can work. And I, I think it, it mainly can work because you're rolling out the exact same lineup minus Robinson Torino's that made it to the Game 7, game seven of a World Series. Um, you've got virtually the same bench coming back, uh, losing Marisnik and um, – Robinson Trinos, obviously, um, and you're missing Garrett Cole. But other than that, Will Harris, I guess, is the other big loss. Uh, the team is virtually the same as, it, as the team that won the American League West by double-digit games um, and made it all the way through the gauntlet that is the American League playoffs. So, I mean, it's this is a team where he literally could roll out the ball and enjoy his last run through the major league baseball and have good results. The new general manager. Now this is a a hire that I think both you and I actually were pretty excited about. And that was bringing in James click from Tampa Bay. So thoughts about the graduate of Yale university. What do you think about him as the new GM? Um, As dubious as I am about dusty Baker. And I think there's some positives there, but I'm hesitant. I am that excited about uh, James Click, and, and reason being, um, my biggest concern with losing, uh, and we've talked about this on prior shows, um, my biggest concern with the punishments was not necessarily Hinch, it's not really even the draft picks, all that, that hurt, it was losing a general manager who had a clear vision for how the entire organization from uh, short season A-ball draft, all that, all the way up to the major leagues, needed to be run in unison. Um, And I think there's only a handful of franchises that are doing that the way I think that the Astros were doing it, and I think the Rays are one of them. So to pluck somebody young, hungry, who has worked in every aspect of baseball operations um, in an organization that is as good with analytics as the Astros are and probably a little bit better at developing their own pitchers, than the Astros have been under Lunau, um, I think he's a slam dunk. Um, I, I, I can't imagine they could have made a better hire short of, uh, you know, going out and money whipping a Theo Epstein or somebody like that. Right, exactly. And and I think um, it, it just feels very Astros. And I feel like the you can't ignore the level of success that the Rays have had with um, – 
with, with little money. I think Dusty Baker made a joke about how people used to say that I used to do more with less and I can't wait to do more with more. This seems like the situation and the opportunity for James Click. Although now we're going to get stupid clickbait jokes every time an article about him is posted. Well, I mean, to, to your point, I think Jim Crane said exactly that. He's excited to see what um, Mr. Click can do. And I'm going to have trouble throughout this season while we talk about him because I keep wanting to call him Jamie Quick former major league pitcher. <laughs> right. Um, it's not him. <laughs> it's younger than him actually. Um, but no, I, I think that you watch a team that had, uh, what a $50 million payroll this year, something close to that, uh, take the Astros to a fifth game in the division series this year because of how their organization looks for builds and develops pitchers. Um, they weren't a great offensive team. They hit, they had timely hits, but they were able to manage uh, what is, has been a historically good offense in Houston uh, for five games because of their approach. Um, and I don't think he necessarily is going to, I don't think we're necessarily going to become a team that is in, you know, based on the new rules, we can't become a one pitcher for one hitter kind of team, but um, it, it it, it looks good, and the fact that they raise seem to keep bringing up good talent, even though they're drafting in the middle of the rounds, um, and developing those pitchers and making them into productive major leaguers. Um, honestly, the Astros have struggled to do that, and Lance McCullers is really the last one that comes to mind. I'm sure I'm missing one here or there, but it's not like the Astros have done a great job of developing in-house pitching. Um, and maybe Josh James has a breakthrough year this year and blows that out of the water. But, I mean, you're still talking about one or two guys where the Rays are running two or three rookies a year up who are having solid contributions to their team. So you think those guys that that we'll be able to do that with are in the system now? Are, I guess my question is, how long do you think we'll feel the effect of what James Click does, which might be a little bit different than what Luno do, did? So, you know, we were talking about this earlier. Different than the NFL or the NBA, uh, major league draft picks are not instant impact players. The best you can hope for is they're up the season following you draft them, and that's that's rare. That's, uh, you know, the golden goose. Where I think the lack of draft picks hurts is that the Astros have been very good since uh, they started their rebuild of taking their pool money and spreading it farther than some other teams. So they're getting guys in the first round who are willing to sign for a little bit less than their slot and spreading that money throughout the other rounds. So losing a first and second pick the way the pool money works, the Astros have lost 60% of their pool money for the next two drafts. So they're going to have to get really creative, and I think they're actually going to have to re-engage kind of a scouting team. And I think the Rays, you know, uh, Click talked about that um, with the Rays of having, you know, some traditional scouting in place as well to augment the analytics. And they're going to have to get a little bit creative in that way because when you lose that money, you – you've lost a lot of your leverage. So you're going to look at a, your third round guy wanting to be treated like a first round pick. You don't have the money to treat him like a first round pick. Um, and, you know, agents love to pounce on this kind of stuff. So you're going to have to find guys who are signable, who can contribute. And you're just, there's nothing else you can do, but weather that storm. Um, so I think with click in place, uh, we're going to have to be a little bit more active, um, in the free agency the next couple of years to supplement. Uh, I think we're going to have to figure out a way to trade players who 
don't want to sign or want to test free agency, as painful as that might be with a couple of the names that would come up if you have that conversation, uh, you're going to have to reload the farm system somehow. Um, and I think that his background is going to enable us to do that quicker or sooner rather than later. So two more questions then. Um, it doesn't Spring training just doesn't start today. George Springer extension watch also really starts because that's when the Astros tend to do it. Do you see an extension for Springer um, knowing that, you know, we're not going to gain any really any more payroll flexibility, particularly if we lose all three outfielders next year. And do you or do you think that they would let him walk? And then also, do you think Click becomes more likely to trade Correa either this year or next year? Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to that question. I think Springer is offered an extension. I have no idea how he feels about it at this point. And I don't think that we get to downplay the fact that Springer, um, and if you look at the, I think you saw the article on The Athletic where the Astros fan actually tracked each one of the garbage can hits and Springer had the highest percentage, I think, after um, Jake Marisnik. So higher, highest of all the regular starters. I, you know, I don't know how being labeled a cheater, if that label sticks to somebody like George Springer, if you could even prove something like that, matters to him. I don't know how other teams are going to see it. My guess is front offices are going to go, I don't care, this guy hits no matter what. Right. Um, I, I, don't know that, I don't know that being labeled a, a cheater and how this season is going to go is going to affect his desire to stay in Houston. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't. But I think one of the challenges Click is going to have pretty quickly is making that determination. And if he's not, and we're not uh, in a situation, uh, you know, the situation presents itself where we get a starting pitcher, but we can sacrifice a little bit of offense, maybe you make that deal. Um, I think Correa is certainly on the table, um, if not this year, maybe next offseason. Um because I think you've got some solutions internally that you could, you know, move Bregman and at short and lose a little bit of defense, gain a little bit of consistency and move somebody like Abraham Toro to third base and not, not dramatically fall off. Um, I don't think you can do both at this point, uh, but the Astros are going to have some roster holes after this year. And certainly after 2021 uh, where this team looks dramatically different than it does now and clicks challenge is going to be to, take the pieces he has and make them into a team, as he said, contend, contends for championships in every year and not just uh, one, two or three years. And how long of a, le- how long of a tenure do you, or how, I guess how long of a leash do you think uh, Jim Crane gives click? Like, do you think that he's going to be allowed to fill the holes or do you feel like it's going to be a kind of a quick trigger if we fall off like going into 2022 or 2023 for a few years? Um, I think you have to. I, I, I think Crane has proven that he can be patient because um, twelve through fourteen were not fun years for anybody. Um, nobody wants to buy a team and then watch them lose a hundred, a hundred and eleven, and a hundred and three, or whatever those numbers were games three years in a row. The outcome was good, so we've got a history now of being able to do that. There are other teams you can look to that have been able to turn things around pretty quickly. It'll be a matter of making smart moves and not holding on to, I'll give you an example of Carlos Correa, not holding on to him because of his potential, because of his output, but because he's a World Series hero from 2017 and maybe 2020. Um, 
that's where teams that do have salary concerns struggle when they win is that these guys are all heroes and they want to win. I think that Lunau did a good job um, and Crane supported him, obviously, of letting somebody like Marwin Gonzalez go to the Twins, uh, letting somebody like Jake Marisnik, who I know didn't play during the 2017 playoffs, but is still you know part of that clubhouse, uh, go to the Mets this offseason. And I think that um, letting Guriel go or walk or eventually a Correa or maybe a Springer, um, you're going to have to have those things. The good news is we do have a full season of Alvarez, and he's so young. Not as young as Juan Soto, because um, he's only 21, I think. I'll have to ask Joe Buck about that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny because you mentioned would people want Springer. I don't know, watching Dodger fans bend over backwards to celebrate getting bets, which, you know, um, by all accounts, they should have celebrated that move. But it does seem like, you know, he's also another guy on a team that, is going to be tainted by this cheating thing, regardless of what MLB says. And so it's funny to me how quickly our morality goes out the door if you can get an offensive player like that. Well, I think that the vast majority of fans have super short memories when it suits their purposes. I, I think we all have that one friend who, oh, I stopped watching baseball after the work stoppage in 1994 and I can't stand them and blah, 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 blah. But the vast majority of people who buy tickets to attend major league games don't care. They want their stars. They want to win. They want to see home runs. They want to see strikeouts. And that's what Major League Baseball caters to. And so if you're a GM and there's a George Springer on the market who can give you those things and put some more butts in seats and get you a better TV deal, you're going to do that. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I don't think that's a long-term concern for, for anybody. Um, Click's got some challenges. The Astros aren't as dire as um, a lot of fans want them to be, I think. Uh, but they certainly have some holes based on, you know, getting a Grinky last year and giving up four guys, getting a Verlander and giving up three or four guys for that. I mean, those eventually those things have to come back home to roost. Um, but he's going to have to show that he can, you know, get some trades in, trade a Josh Reddick and get, you know, the, what the Internet likes to call the lottery ticket kind of guy and develop him into somebody that's working. Um, the challenge it's harder for the Astros now because there are so many teams that value players the way the Astros valued them, where in 2012, 13, and 14, you had fewer teams doing that. Interestingly enough, the Rays were one of those teams, which is why you rarely saw a deal between the Astros and Tampa Bay because they valued players exactly the same way, so it's really hard to get an advantage in a trade. Well, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully it all comes together. I think you're right, and I think the other thing – uh, Astros fans need to recognize is if the Astros don't win the division, which I think they will, uh, and or don't win the World Series, which I think they won't, it won't be because of some karmic reaction to this story from 2017. It'll be because Garrett Cole's a Yankee now. I mean, like, the, at the end of the day, it's still a great team and probably any other season would be the best team on paper. It's just the fact of the matter is the two biggest rivals for that title uh, got better, and that's what happens. Yeah, I think the other thing to keep in mind that there are other ways to improve a team um, beyond just a draft and trades. One of those, um, a little bit of news, I guess, a week ago at this point, uh, the Astros are expected to sign uh, outfielder out of Cuba, Pedro Leon, who was a star in uh, the 2018 Cuban Championship League, um, and he defected since then, so he hasn't played. 
Um, those are the kind of things you still have international dollars. And if I was a baseball fan from another team and I wanted to be mad at something, that's a place where the Astros didn't get dinged at all and will have budget to spend. Um, and they can, you know, sign a future Yuli Gurriel or a Pedro Leon or, you know, somebody like that without affecting their major, their minor league pool or any of those kind of dollars. So there are other ways that he can improve the team, um, and the crane can approve to approve the team beyond just trades when you don't have a lot of trade pieces. Exactly. And then again, maybe somebody wants, maybe somebody wants Devo this year. Maybe Devo <laughs> is really the piece that you could, um, and you can get a young Jeff Bagwell for Larry Anderson. You know, we can always hold out hope for that. And now on to close it out. The right-hander from Houston, Texas, James Christopher. So before we head out of here, I do want to talk a little bit about that cesspool that is a necessity to every single sports fan's life these days. If you want to have information, at least, and be informed, and that is Twitter. Twitter's the worst. And I used to not interact very much on it. Honestly, before we started the show, I essentially had a couple of sports writers that I followed that I would set to alerts and really just use it for information as things came in. With the show, though, and wanting to interact with people and kind of help grow the the fan base of the show, it's really forced me to see just how ugly it all is. How quick to irrational behavior people can be. And in in it really I, I I don't know like part of me wishes that it was this thing that everybody thought social media would be that would make us all feel a little smarter that would make us all maybe connect at a different level with people who weren't right in our own bubble of of our existence and instead it's reduced us to our worst impulses. I mean sometimes I do that sometimes I'll be in a bad mood and I'll immediately go to to, to DefCon five in my troll mode. I guess DEFCON 1. I keep forgetting that. I got to watch war games again. But, you know, it's just one of those things that just drives me up the wall. And and with the Astros sign stealing and the fact that there will be people who must be setting Astros writers to notifications just so they can make a stupid asterisk or Astros or trash can joke. Or the fact that Astros fans will have no sense of nuance about about this whole scandal, like they almost wear it now, like they're proud of it, as opposed to what I being what I think is rational of a little angry at doing doing something that will tarnish their reputation. And I honestly don't think helped all that much. Just look at the reactions when the Giants announced Alyssa Nakin as their new hitting coach. You know, the Aubrey Huff fan club of misogyny and just ridiculousness. Like, trust me, guys, Major League Baseball is a high-dollar business. People get fired overnight. We've seen that in Houston. This was a hire from someone who clearly was qualified for the job. She didn't get it just for a publicity stunt. The reactions of Astros fans to the fact that we're going to have a pride night and haven't had one in years, and and now they're going to they're gonna have one, and the reactions to that where – this the the utter homophobia that's come out about that, which shows you why you need to have a pride night. 
I mean, guys, what do you think is going to happen when you get to Minute Maid Park? There's going to be a booth of them trying to recruit you? That the giveaway is a person for you to date of the same gender? Like, what do you think is going to happen? To the reactions to the Super Bowl halftime show. It's all just so nasty and people are blasting and they're talking and they're not listening to each other. That it's just the worst. And I have to take breaks from it. And my wife makes me take a break from it because I get into my head about it. And my partner, Andy Tom Cheston on the show tells me to stay off and just wait for the first pitch. The problem is, is that people on Twitter don't get punched in the face. And so they don't have, they're able to say things that you would not say to somebody in real life. It's really not doing great things for I think the way we see humanity, at least not for me, but I would say to take heart that generally speaking, people are putting their worst selves up there, that I have lucked into some relationship with people that, especially through direct message, you know, we realize the thing we should all know, we're not that different. We all love this game. We're all passionate about this game. And because we are all fans, we are, we are definitely lent to having a certain degree of hypocrisy when it comes to our love of the game. And these are all good things and these are all fine and that we're better off if we're all talking to each other and enjoying the fact that this baseball game is awesome. So that's my that's my thought. You know, I think about the Charlie Strong, Twitter's a downfall of humanity. When I heard him say that quote, I thought he was being a grumpy old man and now here I am being a grumpy old man. Got a great show planned for you next week. Jake Kaplan from The Athletic will be here. We'll be talking to the Down East Wood Ducks, and we'll be one step closer to playing ball. So thanks for listening. I am your host, James Christopher, and until next time, let's get to it.